0: The UN has given a vision to the world to save the planet and yet prosperous future. Now we, because of inflation and contraction, we see people losing their incomes and food on the table.
1: The investment requirements must factor in the infrastructure that is needed to deal with climate change and the damage and the devastation that is wrought by instances such as floods.
0: I hope we will not wait for a big disaster to happen. The visionaries will come together from all walks of life and they will generate the necessary momentum that's needed to get to the point where we can surmount these
2: challenges. This is The Lid is On, the UN's flagship news podcast with me, Connor Lennon. In 2015, the UN set out an ambitious blueprint for a fairer future for people and the planet. It's called the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and it covers all the big issues facing the world from eradicating poverty and hunger to building societies free from fear and violence and taking urgent action on climate change. Most of us, I'm sure, can get behind all of these goals, targets and aims that are within the agenda. I encourage you to take a look. They're called the Sustainable Development Goals. And each year, a high-level meeting takes place at UN headquarters to gauge the progress made so far or the setbacks to that 2030 goal. But getting there does come at a cost, and that's been calculated at around $4.3 trillion. In 2019, the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, set up the Global Investors for Sustainable Development Alliance, called the GISD, to help bridge that funding gap. It's made up of prominent business leaders from across the world, including the heads of some of the world's biggest financial institutions, who together control some $16 trillion worth of assets. When they met in October 2022, they pledged to scale up financing efforts and find new ways to push investment towards projects that bring those goals one step further. But as Mr Guterres said at the time, there's no time to waste. To get a sense of the scale of the task, I'm joined in the studio by Naveed Hanif, the Assistant Secretary General for Economic Development in the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs. Hi, Navid. Hi, good morning. And all the way from South Africa, Leila Fouri, CEO of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and the co chair of the alliance. Hi, Leila.
1: Hi, Connor. Lovely to be, uh, to be chatting to you and the listeners.
2: I'm going to start with you, Naveed. Uh, you're from Pakistan, and as I said before, protecting the planet is one of the sustainable development goals. A third of your country. Was underwater not that long ago. That must have been very distressing for you. What, what kind of things were you hearing from Pakistan?
0: Well, I was there with the Secretary General in September, immediately after the floods. So I saw it firsthand. One third submerged, 35 million people displaced, most of the crops in those regions gone, prospects for sowing the crops again very dim. 10% of the budget the GDP in terms of damages and displacement of humanity, disease. And we see climate change firsthand the way it is damaging these countries' future. So we have melting glaciers for the next 10 years and then drought after that. So the country will suffer on both accounts.
2: And how, that, how did that make you feel with your job? Did you think... This is an insurmountable task. Did you you feel discouraged?
0: It's it's insurmountable if we tell everyone to do it on their own. They can't do it. Climate change cannot be handled by one country. It is surmountable if we come together. And you saw in the pandemic, we we were able to produce vaccine in less than 14 months. And look at the history of previous pandemics, because we came together.
2: So that pandemic experience, as you say, there, was, there were no vaccines for COVID and in a relatively, well, very short time, uh, we were able to produce things. Do you feel that the world needs to have these shocks in terms of uh, producing that political will to move forward? Do you think that, I mean, it's sad to say, but when you have a, a, a big disaster ex- that's caused by an extreme weather event, are these the kind of things that you think are going to have to happen before any politician will or, or come together and make things move? Let's draw a line between leaders and politicians.
0: The UN was head of the curve in 2015. It has given a vision to the world to save the planet and yet prosperous future for people. So in 2015, the climate carnage was not so severe that we are witnessing today, nor was inequality. And now we, because of inflation and contraction, We see people losing their incomes and food on the table. So I hope we will not wait for a big disaster to happen. We already have a war in one corner of the world. The visionaries will come together from all walks of life. Politicians, CEOs, thinkers. And they will generate the necessary momentum that's needed to get to the point where we can surmount these challenges, which means poverty, hunger, climate change, and the hopes of future generations. Young people need a brighter future.
2: And Leila, you're coming to us from South Africa. The continent of Africa is facing many developmental challenges, climate challenges. To what extent is that top of your mind when it comes to designing the work that you've been doing at the GISD?
1: Certainly, Connor, uh, the work that uh, I've been doing and contributing to the UN has had emerging markets and the continent of Africa um, as as a central and, and and very key considerations in my own country, my own home country, um, I, you know, I come from a country with the highest Gini coefficient in the world. And um, in line with what Naveed was just mentioning in Pakistan um, with the uh, prevailing shifting weather patterns, we've had devastating floods in the eastern part of the country earlier this year and we've had unprecedented drought in the west and so these shifting weather patterns are are creating a profound continental uh, challenge particularly in infrastructure and these countries the african countries have fragile uh, a fragile infrastructure baseline and um Unfortunately, the 4.3 trillion that you um, mentioned in your in your intro really uh, is, is only scratching the surface because the estimates for the investment requirements must also factor in the infrastructure that is needed to deal with infras- uh, with um, climate change and the, the damage and the devastation that, that is wrought by uh, instances such as floods.
2: Right, so the 4.3 trillion you're saying is a real understatement. You've been working on technical issues, setting standards, making the financial environment easier for big companies to invest in initiatives, projects that are are basically good for the planet, good for sustainable development. Is that a fair summing up?
1: The group of of people around the table are are very senior group CEOs across the world. And um, the idea is to use our convening power or our collective power to try and coalesce a, a coalition of the willing and to encourage funding and particularly for those countries in need in order to achieve the uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And that could be funding for infrastructure projects, it could be funding for education, funding for gender-based initiatives that would resolve the gender pay parity gap. Um, There are, are multiple different forms. And in order to achieve that, we have to put in place a number of measures or or support systems. Some of those are common definitions to make sure that all countries approach the SDG situation in a a uniform and similar fashion. Um, Others are relating to aligning measures across sectors. So what you might think a sustainable measure in an airline sector is might be different to what uh, another person in an emerging market country might contemplate in a financial or a manufacturing environment. So it's really using our collective um, influence and our collective ability to act to drive funding in innovative ways towards sustainable projects and outcomes that will support the achievement of the SDGs.
2: And it's important to make sure the culture, the general culture, goes in the right direction uh, with regards to how the private sector thinks about sustainable development and the goals the UN is setting. But, Leila, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I mean, let's face it, the average lifespan of a CEO is around, what, four, five years? I mean, you're, you're powerful people, but how do you make sure that that thinking carries on in the general culture towards the next CEO and the CEO after them?
1: Mm, absolutely, that's a very critical point and continuity and succession of actions is, is vital. So what is firstly very important is that there's a public-private sector alliance and connectivity and that there is a um, a, a, a multilateral uh, engagement plan and that those, those engagements and that those outcomes are not dependent on individual leaders, but are rather focused on uh, processes and outcomes that that will transcend individuals.
2: The reality is, you in the private sector, Leila, you and your colleagues, you have to communicate with politicians and the, the leaders that you spoke about, because it needs to be working together, the finance and the policy need to go together. Are you finding that you're able to speak? To get, are you speaking the same language? Are they understanding what you're saying, especially in this area of sustainable development?
1: On a global level, we are engaging with multilateral development organisations and global institutions to create, for example, um, disclosure frameworks, which is really a framework around which companies would transparently disclose how they are achieving um, the uh, the uh, SDGs or uh, how they're doing on climate change, for example. And why this is important is because it enables government to engage and to collaborate with the private sector in a standardized format that um, avoids um, companies. Uh, either omitting very important information, we call it greenwashing, but really presenting themselves as sustainable when, in fact, those companies are not necessarily sustainable. So governments can install and ensure that there is a standard reporting format. They can ensure that funding is adequately directed and that there are incentives in place. And whether that's in the form of tax incentives or... uh, direct taxes and they can also introduce policies that direct funding towards towards infrastructure or other SDG related initiatives.
2: I said earlier, I hope I didn't make Leila feel too nervous, that CEOs have a limited lifespan. For ministers, it can be even worse. To, so for that continuity, you must see finance ministers, chancellors come and go all the time. Is this the same problem at a governmental level? Are you finding it difficult to, to ensure that continuity and make sure that there's a, there's a through line to the path that you want to head to?
0: Uh, Connor, short-termism is the bane of this civilization on all sides. Quick profits, quick re-elections, and you have to deal with it reality. But let me respond to your first qu- the question that you asked are we talking with each other or across each other. So when the CEOs came together in 2019 we framed the problem in a fashion that both of us around the table could understand what we were talking about. Huge gap in financing the goals which deal with poverty, hunger, disease, education, gender, energy transition. It was to 3 trillion dollars before 2019 now it is 5 trillion dollars the gap I'm not talking about the full amount per annum so we said whatever you are doing right now and that you claim that these investments are aligned with the environmental goals social goals governance or largely SDGs expand the size of the pie first thing it's not enough once you expand it then move the pie where it is needed which means move the money to emerging markets, developing economies. As soon as we said that, that's when we started talking to each other. They said, no, no, we can't move it. We have responsibility to our shareholders. And that's where the ideas evolve. Let's talk to the public sector to change regulations, to, to rethink the fiduciary duty. And then we said, once you move the money, the pie should be moved where it is needed. Then please measure, is it nutritious or is it harming those people where you're taking the pie? So that's where the measurement came in, quality, not just quantity. So that's how we were able to talk to each other. What are the objectives and how do you nudge your shareholders? And that brings me to the second conversation we had. Two industries changed significantly in the last 20 years but driven by very different factors. The tobacco industry, just through public policy. The behaviour was changed. The companies changed their trajectory. Public policy was very strong. But not after a big fight. Well, that's what is needed. And let me come to the insurance industry. Changed because of the hurricanes, tornadoes, disasters and fires. Both industries shifted, adapted. How how do you unite them both? circumstances and public policy. So that's where the alliance brought together the tools. Public policy will be changed, but their own behavior will change. We call in technical terms, and I'll unpack for you and then back to you, we call it double materiality. Let me unpack it for you. As of now, what companies look at, oh, is it financially viable and profitable? Go for it. That's single materiality. Second materiality is OK, you are making money, but are you helping the society and the planet? If not, your performance should be judged against that materiality also. And the alliance has embraced this principle. They issued a statement uh, six weeks ago to the International Sustainability Standards Board that we want to pursue double materiality. So that's a shift UN pushed the alliance to embrace.
2: Well, it's great that that's happening, and it's great that, Leila people like you and your counterparts on the alliance get it but uh, I'm always interested when I speak to people like you to know are, are you or do you think you are outliers or is this kind of thinking shared amongst the wider population in your sector does the financial does the private sector really care about these big problems the agenda is trying to solve or 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 is it primarily greenwashing are they primarily just after the bottom line
1: I think there's a, a growing realization, not only of the um, moral and um, and obligation, um, the moral obligation um, of uh, big business, private sector, but also of the uh, economic implications. Now, um, we are seeing that over the past number of years, perhaps the last three years, sufficient data has been Um, gleaned from sustainable organizations, and that's been compared with those organizations that are more carbon intensive. And more empirical evidence is starting to emerge, indicating that the quality of earnings and the quality of profitability is much Um, more predictable and um, more favorable for those companies that are sustainable. Many of the unsustainable companies face major crises, whether they be fines, oil spills, um, and other uh, elements that dislocate their financial position. And so it's not just a moral imperative um, that is starting to drive big business behavior towards a sustainable investment decision, but it's also the economic realities. Now, added to that, we are starting to see um, pressure groups arising from a combination of the man in the street, general consumers who are voting with their feet, employees who are increasingly um, opting um, out of companies with whom their value system doesn't resonate and then of course um, the general um, interaction with regulators and so the pressure points are certainly starting to push um, Organisations to begin thinking responsibly about how they deploy their capital and how they invest. So we're seeing more and more large um, pension fund. Organizations or asset managers. We're seeing more banks starting to opt to fund and to invest in more sustainable companies than than less sustainable companies. It's certainly a growing trend and there are lead and lag countries across the world. Um, And the concept of whether uh, what Naveed was discussing, this concept of double materiality, whether organizations only look internally, which is the, the single financial factors, or whether they consider the impact on the environment. Take a mining company, for example. How does that mining activity affect the community, the health, the education, the general development of the environment around them? Um, And that would be the double materiality or the impact component of their measurements. And those components are starting to grow in, um, in, in the attention that they're grabbing. From investors and from governments alike, and um, they're 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 also starting to prompt CEOs to become more conscious and more aware of where their funding is is landing up. So I would say um, uh, CEOs are starting coming back to your question. They are starting to consider far more seriously um, investment and um, capital decisions. Um, that have a a sustainability lens on them than in the past.
2: And you're both working, of course, in uh, the the globalised economy, the increasingly globalised economy over the last few years. Um, You know, all the things you're talking about, the standard setting, the the, the incremental improvements in that environment. But that that whole model has taken a real hit in the last couple of years, hasn't it? I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic... It revealed the limits to this this just-in-time international trade model. The war in Russia has underlined the fragility of international energy markets. So uh, my my last question to you, and um, I'm sorry, it's not a particularly easy one, but is the whole system broken? I would say the system is not totally dysfunctional. It's adjusting.
0: And adjustments can fracture some parts of it. Second, globalization is here to stay. The map of globalization is being redrawn. It won't disappear. Because as human civilization, we are far too dependent on these connections and interlinkages. Can the system survive, adapt, and emerge fit for purpose? That remains to be seen. But those who believe in it, be it in the private sector, public sector, they're all trying to make it respond to the new realities in an effective way and also adjust as fast as it's needed. So that's where we are right now. At the UN, we see on a daily basis adjustments are happening.
1: We have a cascading set of crises that have shifted global trade patterns. Um, what I would say we are seeing is, rather than a deglobalization, perhaps a neoglobalization, which is new trade relationships starting to evolve, and countries also starting to diversify their trading partners. Uh, The uh, sole reliance on gas in in Europe has, has highlighted the risk associated with concentrated trade relationships and the importance of having alternatives. You're likely to have a global south, global north set of relationships that are developing with more developed countries which are often characterized with a high carbon footprint and the uh, African continent and the global south who have more natural access to renewable energy. And I I believe that that will, will spur and create and generate new trade relationships that previously perhaps hadn't existed that said, I, I do believe that there is a growing fragility in the emerging market sector as a result of the implications of these, um, these global shocks that we're seeing, not only in the form of, of this supply chain um, uh, dislocation, but particularly in the form of inflation and food inflation, which is, is at the heart of many of the emerging market inflation crises. And um, we need to acknowledge that globally and we need to ensure that trade relationships and funding is adequately planned to address and to support those emerging markets through um, this, this very difficult and complex time that we're experiencing.
2: Well, I will be following your work. Throughout 2023, Leila, Navid, thank you so much. Um, my main takeaway is to study further double materiality I've learned today. Thank you, Navid, and neo-globalization. So uh, those will be my watchwords <laughs> for the next few months. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of The Lid is On, the UN's flagship news podcast. We are broadcasting every Friday. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. And if you haven't already, please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you both.